Good evening. Biden introduces a new Supreme Court justice on the White House lawn. Peace talks in Yemen appear to yield fruit. Back and forth about atrocities in Ukraine and a rally to protest city homeless policies in Tompkins Square Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, April 8th, 2022. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson today celebrated her historic confirmation as the first black woman to serve on the United States Supreme Court with a declaration that anything is possible in America and a reference to fulfilling the dreams of slaves. After an introduction by Biden in the sunshine outside the White House, Jackson quoted another famous black woman, the late poet Maya Angelou, in describing her own historic ascent to the nation's top judicial body. My fellow Americans, today I'm honored to officially introduce to you the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Ketanji Brown Jackson. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. But we've made it. (laughs) We've made it, all of us, all of us. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. So as I take on this new role, I strongly believe that this is a moment in which all Americans can take great pride. We have come a long way toward perfecting our union. In my family, it took just one generation to go from segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States. And it is an honor, the honor of a lifetime, for me to have this chance to join the court, to promote the rule of law at the highest level, and to do my part to carry our shared project of democracy and equal justice under law forward into the future. Thank you again, Mr. President and members of the Senate, for this incredible honor. On Thursday, with a 
53 to 47 vote in a milestone for the United States and a political victory for Democratic President Joe Biden, who nominated her in February. The decision to hold the event outdoors comes after former President Donald Trump's 2020 nomination ceremony for his Supreme Court appointee, Amy Coney Barrett, turned into a COVID-19 super spreader event, affecting many top Republicans who attended. During his four years in office, Trump was able to appoint three justices who together moved the court rightward. And in international news, the head of Yemen's new presidential council said today he would end the seven-year-long war via a peace process in his first speech since power was delegated to the body by the Saudi-backed president this week. President Abd Rabu Mansour Hadi, who is based in Riyadh, delegated power to the council and dismissed his deputy yesterday as Saudi Arabia moves to strengthen an anti-Houthi alliance amid UN-led efforts to revive peace negotiations. Houthi representatives had refused to travel to Riyadh this week. Saudi Arabia executed about more than 50 people. A number of them were from Yemen. Peace activist Kathy Kelly. The Saudi government very easily persuaded Abd Rabu Mansour Hadi, who was the unelected president of Yemen. He was never elected. He was appointed uh, by a dictator that had stepped aside. And so Hadi has always just only been in Riyadh doing the bidding of Saudi Arabia as a puppet president. But now he has vacated his post and took his vice president with him, and he's being replaced by a council of eight, I'm going to say warlords. I think it's fair to say that these are eight people who have shown that they have a massive interest in grabbing territory, using bloodshed to control territory, fighting with each other. The infighting amongst those eight people makes it seem, you know, almost comical that they would then be drawn together for the sole purpose, it seems, of defeating the Houthi. And as you mentioned, when it comes to, you know, the group that has actually fought and gained fought for and gained control over most of Yemen it is the Houthi and uh, I think Saudi Arabia at this point wants a way out of the war they did declare a ceasefire but they didn't lift the blockade and that's been a major demand of the Houthi fighters and so now they've formed this count it doesn't seem like a you know a very bright prospect for it because of the ways in which the people on the council have all been fighting against each other for years. Now, it should be said that the Saudis um, made $3 billion available to the new government of Yemen. That's a lot of money. And uh, $3 million to a United Nations relief fund. The United Nations was greatly disappointed in that the last time that they held a fundraiser, um, they got only they got less than a third of what they were asking for. And that's a country that, you know, when we think about the suffering and the bloodshed and the, the destruction in Ukraine, well, the, the same has been going on in Yemen since 2015. The failure of the crop in Ukraine and reduction, you know, the, the sanctions against Russia are affecting foods availability in, in Yemen. For Yemen, they uh, got 38 percent of their grains from the combination of crops planted in the Ukraine and those that were harvested in Russia. Well, with sanctions, those Russian crops aren't going to be forthcoming. And it's very unlikely that Ukraine is going to be having a planting season to cultivate crops. So you know who gets affected well you know little children who've got no uh 
possible capacity to control the governments of their countries or our countries, and, and they are the ones who are going to die tortuous deaths, tortuous deaths. And when these little ones um, are, are severely malnourished, that also makes them very, very vulnerable to other diseases. And if it's just a combination of gastroenteritis and um, you know, a respiratory infection, that can be deadly. So the the children, as you say, they're 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 stunted and uh, weakened, no matter what. But now there will probably be many, many more who succumb to death. Now the Houthis are they boycotting this government? They had said before that they wouldn't go to negotiations that were that were held in Riyadh, and I think you know it's significant that uh, two days before uh, Riyadh said that they wanted to. Um, proposed negotiations in their city, Saudi Arabia. They had executed 86 people, and seven of them were Yemenis, and five of those people executed were people who opposed Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. So, you know, you can understand why, you know, Yemenis who are fighting that war <laughs> aren't yeah. feeling real safe about, you know, hopping on over to, to Riyadh for negotiations. But also, at heart, is this matter of lifting the blockade. And I, I think they've got to hang tough on saying that uh, no country can survive when every one of its ports and its major airports are blockaded. There's been a little bit of a lifting, which, uh, you know, some planes, some, very few commercial planes can now fly in and out of the Sama airport. And some fuel ships have been able to go into the port of Hodeida. But, you know, this is a whole country that's reeling from the effects of their decimated infrastructure and the seven years of blockade, they've got to get you know an economy up and running, and they can't do that under blockade. And it just amazes me how seldom the U.S. press, mainstream press, ever mentions that blockade. Peace activist Kathy Kelly, the war in Yemen has killed tens of thousands, devastated the economy, and pushed Yemen to the brink of famine. Yemen's warring sides have agreed on a two-month truce that began last Saturday. In more war news, Ukraine and its allies blamed Russia for a missile attack that killed at least 52 people at a train station packed with women, children, and the elderly, fleeing the threat of a Russian offensive in the east. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky called the strike in Kramatorsk in the eastern region of Donetsk a deliberate attack on civilians. The town's mayor estimated about 4,000 people were gathered at the train station at the time. The regional governor says the situation of the station was hit by a Tachka-U short-range ballistic missile containing cluster munitions. These weapons explode in midair, spraying small lethal bomblets over a wider area. Nevertheless, in New York City, Russian ambassador to the United Nations, Vasily Nebenzia, accused Ukraine and its Western allies of a false flag attack to blame Russian soldiers for the alleged war killings in Bukha during a press conference in New York City this week. He says Ukrainian nationalists were responsible for atrocities that had happened in the Kiev suburb and dismissed the video of bodies lying in the streets as crude forgery. It is not the case. It will never be the case. And it was never the case. We have factual evidence uh, that uh, proves this point. We intend to present it to Security Council as soon as possible. What we see now is a shameful and unprecedented abuse by the UK uh, of the President's prerogatives. At the same time, this is a demonstration of weakness showing that the Western delegations had to resort to this important uh, to this maneuvering to try to shut, to shut the Russians' voice. It only proves 
the point that the Western delegations care neither about the real situation in Bucha nor about the council authority. Abusive, condescending, colonialistic line of the UK presidency is undermining the very foundation of the UN, and we will yet to assess the implications. The presidency is entrusted by the Charter to lead the Security Council. The UK failed to lead. It is a disgrace uh, for the Brit British diplomacy and uh, an undeniable stain on its reputation. Given negligence, given negligence of the UK presidency, we decided to convene this press con conference to shed light on the Western back provocation of the Kyiv regime in Bucha. I would like to present you to the real facts about Bucha. During the time that the town has been under the control of the Russian armed forces, not a single local resident has suffered from any violent action. For as long as the town was under the control of the Russian armed forces, locals were moving freely around the town and using cellular phones, so they could post in the social media any photo and video or video footage on any theoretical harassment uh, if this was the case. However, that didn't happen. Vasily Nebentia is Russia's ambassador to the United Nations. The United Kingdom holds a revolving position as chair of the Security Council and therefore chaired the meeting yesterday that suspended Russia from the Human Rights Council. Ukraine accused Russian forces of war crimes in Bucha after, uh, pardon me, in Bucha after images of dead bodies scattered on the streets of the city emerged over the weekend. The Russian Ministry of Defense denied Kyiv's accusations, saying all Russian forces have been withdrawn from Bucha by March 30th and claiming this is a another staging for the Western media by the Kyiv regime, their words. In related news, Secretary General of NATO Jen Stoltenberg condemned China's unwillingness to condemn Russia's offensive in Ukraine, calling it a challenge for the alliance. The remarks came after the NATO chief concluded a two-day summit with the alliance's foreign ministers and international partners in Brussels. Because the implications of Russia's invasions are global and will be long-lasting, and what is happening in Ukraine is being closely watched around the world. We have seen that China is unwilling to condemn Russia's aggression. And Beijing has joined Moscow in questioning the right of nations to choose their own path. This is a serious challenge to us all. And it makes it even more important that we stand together to protect our values. And that's Jen Stoltenberg, the General Secretary or Secretary General of NATO. Following the meetings of NATO Ministers of Foreign Affairs, the partners and allies agreed to, quote, further strengthen and sustain support to Ukraine. That's according to Stoltenberg. And we're going to take a leap to neighborhood news here in New York City. 200 protesters gathered this afternoon in Tompkins Square Park. That's in the East Village neighborhood of the Lower East Side to protest Mayor Eric Adams' homeless sweep. Yesterday, an encampment on East 9th Street near the Charis Community Center was rousted by cops who arrested six activists who came to support unhoused people living in a tent city known locally as Anarchy Row. The group gathered at 4 p.m. in an area that was once a center for unhoused people in the park, but last summer was gated off by the city. Today, the gates were down. No police were visible, and homeless people and activists spoke about the challenge facing unhoused New Yorkers. An unhoused person, Saquon 60, who says he came to the park after being released from Rikers Island, had this to say. My name is Saquon 60. I came a long way. I know what it's like to sleep on the side of my mom's staircase, not even try to beg a grown woman to, you know what, let me in. 
Mama, please let, let me in. You know what? I'm a grown man. You know what I'm saying? Just because I wasn't let in doesn't mean y'all ain't going to let them in. It doesn't mean that y'all going to let them starve. When they started hiring more police officers and started telling officers, you know what? We're going to hire more officers for the for the train, for the right. subway. Hey. Where'd that money come from? Where the f did the money go to? Who spent it? Who ate it? Who drank it? We all know the f***ing deal. Eric Adams sit so cozily in his house, so comfortable, while our blood, our skin color, and the money that we we work hard for is tainted on the flag. But I tell you what, for no longer will we take this bullshit. Whenever there's someone starving in the streets, doesn't have a place to go. It don't matter if that person is over your age. You guys are gonna make it your responsibility to make sure when you see them for the second time or the first time, bring that hot meal. Cause a hot meal warms up the heart. I know what it's like to make the struggle look good. I know what it's like to have my back wrinkled on staircase. It don't feel good when you're trying to find a warm place at night. For those suckers that like calling 911, don't call the cops. They more gangster than me. <laughs> a fellow rock gang, 60 Crip. They more fellow gangster than me. And let me tell you this. Yes, I got sense of Rikers. You think it was cute? No. Nope. Fighting a two to five. You think it's fair? No. Ah, oh, they lied on my name. And I don't feel good. Because anxiety, schizo. Bipolar got me feeling crazy. I don't know whether I'm ready to sleep at night since I came out of Rikers. I haven't slept. And I don't feel good. Raise your hand. How many people know somebody in Rikers? You know what? Because to be honest, not many of you do. You know why? Because they only talk at the skin color. That's right. And when they talk at the skin color and they make you lose your job, and they make you lose your house, and they drive you through the system, and the system drives you crazy. Yep, yep. Right. You wind up unhoused, in the streets, That's right. eating out the trash. Yep. And you think it's fair to us? It's not fair to us. Nope. Saquon six sees an unhoused person living in Tompkins Square Park. He was holding an American flag, but instead of red, white, and blue, it was red, black, and green. A former executive director of the unhoused activist group Picture the Homeless is Lynn Lewis. She says Mayor Adams is repeating past failures when he has police force people out of homes they've made for themselves in the streets and parks. The Adams administration is aggressively, well, they're building on de Blasio and previous administrations um, attempts to erase homeless folks from public space. Um, and the idea, broken windows policing, uh, but it goes beyond that. If we get rid of homeless people, then housed people will feel better about themselves and the economy and think that things are better. Um, you know, this neighborhood, Tompkins Square Park, is really gentrified. So there's old school people that actually save the neighborhood by squatting and organizing and rebuilding homes. Um, and supporting homeless people resisting police abuse and harassment. But the, the actual 
battle for Tompkins Square Park that happened when Mayor Dinkins was mayor, I think makes this a really important site, contested site for resistance. And there are plenty of folks that are still in this neighborhood, as gentrified as it is, who are living in buildings that they rehabbed with their own sweat equity, their own hands, that are still here, that are still leaders in this community, um, so that it's a li- so that it's livable for everyone, regardless of how much money you have in your pocket. What Adams is doing is he's ratcheting up the brutality. Some people will move. I mean, if you're sleeping on the ground and eight cops roll up with guns and badges, you're pretty much likely going to move, if, especially if there's you by yourself or a small group of people. If there's support, if there's visible resistance, and that's why this is really important, because it sends a message to the city, but it sends a message to homeless folks that people have your back, that everybody doesn't look at you like Adams saying we have to remove homeless folks from the subways. Uh, And people say, well, where are they going to go? And he says, well, first you have to remove the cancer and then worry about the cures if homeless folks are a disease as opposed to our housing market, which is a disease that harms people that are poor. He's going to just be as badass as he can get away with until he stopped. I can't say, oh, yes, this rally or rallies are going to stop that machine. But I can say it won't stop if we don't resist. Every battle, every progressive policy starts with people resisting and thinking and coming together and deciding to act. And so what needs to happen is street homeless folks will say yes to a private room and a bathroom. People don't feel safe in large congregate shelters. COVID is coming back. Why should people go in a congregate shelter? Their tourism is down. You know, those hotel rooms, homeless can't stay home, did this at the beginning of the COVID epidemic. Hotel rooms have their have their own bathroom. That's what people want. People want what everybody else wants, a safe place to lay their head. And so we can do that in New York. There's the city budget, Department of Homeless Service budget is over a billion dollars a year. That money can be better spent. That doesn't house people, it shelters people. And people that refuse that are human beings that are saying this doesn't make sense. And they are right. And so we could take their lead and um, open up hotel rooms with bathrooms and put people in them so they can rest and get back on their feet and then work on longer term solutions. You know, homelessness has been around increasing since the Reagan administration. And so it's not going to get fixed overnight. But brutalizing people into, like, I think the first set of sweeps, I don't remember how many folks were displaced, but the reporting said, like, five went to shelters. So that's not effective. It's just moving people around. New York, we have a law. Uh, the first in the country that prohibits the police from profiling people because they're homeless. So that's what made the getting people off the subways illegal, was the police were profiling them. Now they're saying encampments, there are laws against like building structures on the sidewalk, but so what? Uh, Slavery used to be legal. Like we don't just follow what's legal and what's not legal. We have to think about what's right and what makes sense for the common good. 
Lynn Lewis is former executive director of the unhoused activist group Picture the Homeless. After speeches, a large crowd of protesters headed to Charas on East 9th Street, an abandoned former school building and community center at the heart of a fight between local activists who want the building returned and a landlord who bought the building to use as NYU dormitory. After hanging a banner on the side of the building, they headed back to the park. And finally, six months after the powerful House Oversight Committee began investigating the sprawling Rikers Island complex, its chairwoman and two other members say conditions at the troubled jail remain unacceptable and may be worse than previously known. In a letter to Mayor Eric Adams, committee members Carolyn Maloney, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamie Raskin urged Adams to expand specialized mental health units at Rikers and also called on him to encourage district attorneys and the courts to increase the referrals to problem-solving mental health health courts. And that's some of the news for Friday, April 8th, 2022. The news produced Linda Perry and Chris Flash of The Shadow Who Helped. And our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.